0: If you have your Bible. Let me rephrase that. Open your Bibles. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We will be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. And as has been our practice over the past two months, I'm just going to ask that you would stand and read the word of God with me. It will be on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. Uh, But Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 11. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, through verse 11. And one, two, three, read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you,
1: Hmm. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has needed it. <laughs> it
0: This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to
0: God. Father, we ask this morning that you would lead us. It is our desire that we would see Jesus. That we would know him. Lord, that we would be a people who, uh, because of our encounter with Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, deny ourselves and through grace empowered obedience follow you. God, I thank you that you promise that for those of us in Christ we are always with you. God, I pray this morning as we enter into this text that we would see you as the king that you are and that we would respond Rightly, help us today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, my God, my rock and my redeemer. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, When I was a young teenager, my brother and I, Uh, used to do some work for a man in our church, and this man's name was Bob. And my brother and I really enjoyed working for Bob. He was a pretty good boss to have, but uh, Bob was in real estate. And, And Bob had multiple properties, and so every once in a while he'd call my brother and I'd say, hey, I need you to go out clean up this part of the property or, uh, you know, shampoo the carpet or something like that. We just have a variety of jobs to do, clean things up, move things around. You know, the types of jobs that you need some uh, energetic young teenagers for uh, with lots of time and energy at their disposal. And so we would get called by Bob to go work for him. After we finished the job, Bob would, would come back to the site, he'd kind of inspect our work and then he'd come to both of us and he'd ask a question that to this day still gives me anxiety. He would say, uh, what do you think I should pay you for your work today? And I hated that question. I, I hated that question because it, it, it caused me, who if you're starting to get to know me, I live kind of in my head sometimes. Um, it caused me to think a lot about what the right answer was. About what the right answer was. How do I respond to Bob? I didn't like answering that question because I had to balance a couple of things. I had to balance who I believed Bob was. And I had to balance who I believed I was. And I had to hold those things in tension in answering this question. At the end of the day's work, he's essentially asking me, he said, okay, based on today, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, if I think Bob is a wealthy employer and I think that he's a generous employer, here's what I'm going to do. Probably going to ask for a little bit more, right? I'm going to think he's got it and I'm going to think he's generous with it. And so I'm going to request that he gives me a little bit more that day. But if I think Bob's a shrewd manager, I think he like holds things pretty tightly. If I think he's a bit of a perfectionist, if I think that he's always kind of looking at me with suspicion in his eyes, I'm probably going to ask for a little bit less, right? Who I believe Bob is, is going to directly influence the way that I answer that question. But who I believe I am is also going to answer that question and directly influence it. If I think my work was great that day, I'm going to feel much more confident saying, Bob, I would like you to pay me $20 for five hours of work, which back then seemed like a lot of money. (laughs) But if I'm feeling a bit nervous about my day's work, maybe less confident, maybe I just noticed that I missed some stuff, or maybe I was just downright lazy, I'm going to feel less confident in asking I'm gonna feel like I need to lowball the ask. What do you want me to do for you? That question and my response to that question is deeply shaped by who I believed Bob to be and who I believed I was. Here's my argument for us today, just so you can try to follow. Who you believe Jesus is, like who you believe Jesus to be and who you believe yourself to be will deeply shape your response to him. Let me say that again. Who you believe Jesus to be and who you believe yourself to be will deeply shape your response to him. In our passage today Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem and for the first time in his entire ministry he is going public with who he is. Up until this point he's pronounced, uh, he's done great miracles, he's had great teachings and every time he heals someone or every time he frees frees someone from demon possession he says just be quiet about this. Don't really tell anybody, kind of keep it on the down low. And then here in this text, for the first time, in the entire story, he is publicly declaring who he is and what his intentions are. It's for the first time in his ministry that he's going public and he is claiming to be king. This book, the Gospel of Mark that we are in, is an absolutely beautiful book of the Bible. The Bible is divinely inspired literary art. I mean, it is just the most beautiful book that there is. Um, and this book of Mark specifically is one of the standout features in the Bible, I think. It's my favorite gospel. It might be my favorite book in all of the Bible. And the reason is, is because it's just this beautiful work of art and it's driving us to ask two questions. The first thing in the first eight chapters that Mark wants us to ask, he wants us to ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. He's driving us to ask that question. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's preaching a message of repentance and belief in his kingdom. He's calling people to change their life. And then he just starts exhibiting incredible amounts of authority. Like incredible amounts of authority. He shows up and he just starts to say, hey, follow me. And people are like, okay, I'm gonna, I just, I have to do this. And so people follow him. And then he shows up and he says, I'm, I'm showing authority over demons and I'm gonna have authority over sickness and over physical ailments. And then he teaches with authority. In fact, the, the common response to Jesus when he's spoken is, who is this man who speaks with authority not like the scribes? Like there are other people who are, who are teaching and they don't really have authority. But this guy, something about the words that come out of his mouth, he has authority. And then as the story goes, he's on a boat, and the boat is caught up in a storm, and Jesus silences the storm. And the way we want to talk about that is Jesus can silence the storms of your life, but that's not what it's doing because his disciples are incredibly afraid afterwards. What they're asking is, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this person who has such authority? And there's this just tension bleeding out of the pages of the book of Mark. It's that Jesus has an authority that has never been seen before. Not so he can calm the wind and the waves of your life, but because he is Lord. And it's, it's this continual build up, And as the story moves along, we're forced to keep asking this question. It's the question that's asked throughout the book. Who is this Jesus? And then in chapter 8, we get the answer. And it's a turn in the book. It's a magnificent turn that happens in the book. Uh, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they give a response and then Peter stands up. And Peter is simultaneously the best disciple and the worst all at the same time. It makes me feel very comfortable about myself. And he says, you are the Christ. And what he's making a statement about there is he's saying Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's chosen Savior who will come to save God's chosen people and bring about the kingdom of God which will right all wrongs. He's the Savior King that's been promised for thousands of years And that answer shows up and then the book shifts and it turns. And the first way that we tell that is Jesus is no longer starting to ask the question, who am I? He starts to answer the question, what I've come to do. First eight chapters, who is Jesus? In the last eight chapters, what has he come to do? Immediately after the question of his identity is answered, Jesus begins prophesying his death and his resurrection. He begins to say, I am going to die for the sins of my people. And the people following him do not get it. He says this, and a moment ago we have Peter professing, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Peter rebukes him. (laughs) It's hilarious. Peter can't understand a Savior and a King who would die. He can't get it. He doesn't understand it. So who does Peter believe Jesus to be? Well, he believes Jesus to be a conquering king in need of a pep talk, and he believes himself to be his advisor or his counselor. He's the advisor to the king. You see, he has a wrong belief about Jesus, and he's got a wrong belief about himself, and it leads to him missing Jesus. Jesus. The next time his, Jesus will prophesy his death, it's the second of three times that he'll do this in the book of Mark, his followers start arguing over who's the greatest. <laughs> Jesus is prophesying his death, and they're in the corner arguing about who's better. It's a fascinating thing. Who do his followers believe Jesus to be? They believe him to be a king, setting up a kingdom of the powerful and so they have to make sure they prove themselves as the best in order to get higher positions of authority and power in his kingdom. They have a wrong belief about Jesus, and they have a wrong belief about themselves, and it leads to them missing Jesus. And then the third and final time, he tells them what's about to happen. Two of his followers, James and John, otherwise known as the sons of thunder. It's an amazing passage of scripture they, they come to him there's just irony dripping from it they come to him and they, they say if they, they ask if they can have the highest position of power in the kingdom They're like hey Jesus I know it's a lot to ask but you look at the rest of your disciples clearly we're a cut above can we be at your right and your left hand when you come in power Like can that be us we just really think we've deserved that. It's it's an amazing story. He he's prophesying Jesus is prophesying how he will be made low as a servant in order to save his people and here are two of his followers jockeying for position, power and authority. They have a wrong belief about Jesus and a wrong belief about themselves and it leads to them missing Jesus. They don't get it. They don't get it. There's this amazing thing that happens in this interaction. Jesus comes to these two followers who are jockeying for position and authority and he asks that question that Bob asked me. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And because of their wrong belief about who Jesus was and their wrong belief about who they were, they miss the point and they miss Jesus. Their answer to that question is, make us the greatest. And it's an answer that is deeply shaped by a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of themselves. And then immediately after, this is right before our passage, we're in Mark 10 right now, this thing happens where Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to the place that Jesus says he'll be crucified. And they come across a man. He's a man who's mentioned only one time in the entire Bible. His name is Blind Bartimaeus. (laughs) And he gets it. He gets who Jesus is. And he gets who he he is. It's an incredible contrast between Jesus, our Jesus' followers, his disciples, his closest people seeing clearly with their eyes, yet they are blind. And blind Bartimaeus, seeing clearly who Jesus is, calling after him as the king, calling for mercy from him. And he sees clearly, even amidst his blindness, Jesus calls to him and he asks him the same question he's just asked the disciples, the same question I believe our text is asking us today. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus recognizes his position as someone in need of mercy. He recognizes he has nothing to offer. He just wants to see Jesus and Jesus restores his sight and then this man follows him into Jerusalem and follows him to his death. The tension of that question is at the forefront of our minds as Jesus begins his triumphal entry. What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's deeply connected to who you believe he is and who you believe you are. And it will deeply shape your response to him. This passage we're in today of Mark chapter 11, it is a passage of arrivals and departures. When you arrive at an airport, what do you look for first? Typically, the signs that either tell you where the baggage claim is or the arrivals and the departures. When are the planes getting here? When are the planes leaving? And that's what's happening in this passage. Immediately, you're getting into this passage and there's an arrival. And as the passage ends, there's a departure. This passage is the story of an arrival and a departure. In the opening, as Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem, he's claiming the authority of a king. The first six verses are incredibly out of character for the book of Mark. Mark has used words like immediately and then to further along the plot of the story. The story has just moved so quickly throughout the book of Mark. It, it's, it's just, as soon as you finish a story, you're on to the next one, and on to the next one. It moves quickly and succinctly. And then here, in these six verses about a colt, a donkey, <laughs> Mark slows down. The number of times he says tying and untying is almost painful. I hope you felt it as you read the text. Feels like a tongue twister. It's redundant and it's slow, which is really out of character for our author. This should tell us something. He's drawing attention to the manner in which Jesus enters this city. We see this phrase appear. It's it's a phrase that jumps off the page. The Lord has need of it. The disciples go and they're told to grab this donkey and they say, well, what what if somebody asks about it and Jesus says, just say the Lord has need of it. So they go, they go to this place in the city and they see the donkey that Jesus talks about and they begin to tie and untie and they untie the colt and they grab the colt and those standing by, they say, what the heck are you doing? That's not your colt. It's not your donkey. And Jesus' disciples, they say, the Lord has need of it. That checks out. And then they're good to go. <laughs> it's fascinatingly detail-oriented for this, this situation in, in which throughout the entire book, we're asking, who is Jesus? What does he come to do? He goes and sends his disciples to get a donkey, and he has authority over that donkey. Like, he knows where it's going to be, and he has authority over it. The Lord has need of it. What is this text doing in this very obscure part of this story? Well, it's confirming Jesus' authority. As a king, he can lay claim to anything he needs. What's underneath the surface of this text is that if Jesus is the king, Jesus really is who this book says is he is then he has authority over everything and then we come to this welcome we'd think that the welcome would be maybe more detail oriented but it's not it gets two verses three verses There's a few things going on in this welcome that we need help with. The first is, why in the world is Jesus riding a donkey? Now, there's a lot been made out of, oh, look at how humble Jesus was. And I'm not saying Jesus was not humble. He certainly was. But that's not what this text is doing, and that's not what him riding a donkey is doing. In the ancient world, the donkey was viewed as a symbol of kingship and a symbol of royalty. In the Old Testament, Solomon, one of the greatest kings, rode into his inauguration on a donkey. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is prophesying that Jesus is the king. And the way that you're going to notice him is he is going to come into the city as royalty would come into the city. He's going to come into the city on this donkey. And he shows up. This king who's going to bring salvation and he is showing up with authority, claiming kingship. But he's also here to fulfill the Old Testament promises that he is a savior for his people. So we have here in this text so far what we've learned about Jesus, who he is, who he claims to be, what we need to believe about him in order to believe and understand him rightly is we need to understand that Jesus is a savior and he is a king and he has authority over everything. And so the people, they roll out the red carpet. In the Old Testament, uh, we're dealing with dirt roads quite often. We're, we're dealing with uh, filth. And that's not good enough for a king. And so the people, they bring their palm branches and they bring their cloaks so that Jesus would have this entrance into the city. They're saying the ground is not good enough for you. We'll make sure that you don't touch it as you walk through the city. And so they throw their cloaks and their palm branches onto the ground for Jesus to enter the city. And there's this thing happening in this text, and I hope we're grabbing it. The people recognize that Jesus is king. The people recognize that Jesus is king. They're affirming that in their actions here. I hope we see that, I hope we grab that, because that's gonna deeply shape some of the ways we understand the rest of this week. Jesus is mounted upon the donkey is, it's a bold symbolic statement concerning his identity as the legitimate ruler of Jerusalem. He is king and the people are affirming him as such. They are saying yes, he is king, but what they don't see and what they don't know is that he is an unexpected king. He's an unexpected king. You see, the people in this text, while they are happy to see Jesus on a donkey, I'm sure they would have desired to see him on a war horse. I'm sure they would have desired to see Jesus who's going to come in and liberate them from their captors, the Roman Empire. But instead, he comes on a donkey which is a symbol of peace. A king who intends to rule Peacefully. It's quite a story that, that Jesus is not here on the war horse; that he will come when he returns, but he is now on a donkey. And they receive him as king. They, they they receive him as king. There's there's this unexpected reality going on, but they still say, "Okay, well, this is Zechariah nine nine. He is the king, so we'll receive him as the king." And so they sing a song from Psalm one eighteen. It's a psalm prophesying the coming king who will save his people from all of their enemies. But Jesus does not come to triumph over Rome through military victory, he does not come to bring them a prosperous reign. He comes to triumph over sin and shame, to triumph over all the enemies of God's kingdom through his death. The people rejoice at this king who comes to save them, but they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what they need saving from. See, they have a somewhat of a right idea of who Jesus is but they have a poor idea of who they are. Jesus to them is a sign of their own prosperity. He is not a sign of their own need. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus now because they have a fundamental misunderstanding of themselves. I want you to take notice of something in this text. It's a unique feature, Uh, arrivals and departures. Jesus doesn't stop at Jerusalem. He grabs a connecting donkey all the way into the temple. And that's unique that he goes to the temple. He arrives in the city and he goes to the temple. See, the temple, it it symbolizes God's presence with his people. That's what it's there for. It's supposed to say, God dwells with his people. But there's this fascinating prophecy back in Ezekiel, and the prophecy says uh, that there was a cart and the Spirit of God was there and they left the temple. So God's presence has left the temple, He is no longer present with His people. But the narrative of Scripture is that Jesus is God made flesh, and now he dwells among his people. And so when Jesus arrives here at the temple, it is symbolizing that God's presence has returned. And we'd think, wow, what's about to happen? This is incredibly climactic. But then he leaves, he departs again. The presence of God has left the temple again. What do we do with that? He leaves, he departs from the temple, from the city, back to where he started. Today, he is celebrated as king. And tomorrow, he's going back to the temple. Tomorrow he's going back to the temple and he's going as a king He's going as a king who carries God's presence, but in order for him to dwell among his people, he needs to cleanse them of unrighteousness. He's here. The king has arrived to save, but the king has also arrived to rule and reign. And he is not satisfied to leave us in our sins and simply better our circumstances. He comes offering us peace, but it's a peace that is only found when he is our savior and our king and when we recognize ourselves rightly in that story of those in need of saving and those in need of a king. If we simply think that he has come to better our circumstances, we will miss Jesus. There's a pastoral question that's just at the forefront of my mind coming into this week. I mentioned it a little bit last week. I mentioned it a lot in passing with our staff and some of our our members here. And um, it's just been turning this around in my mind. How do we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday? How do we get from Palm Sunday to Good Friday? what I mean by that is how do we get from this passage this triumphal entry celebrating Jesus welcoming Jesus with zealous and passionate excitement and the words blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Friday where most likely this very crowd that is here celebrating him is now shouting crucify him how do we get there? let me put this more bluntly Um, there are some of us in this room right now who are happy to receive Jesus as our savior. And we are excited to be with him in a moment of celebration. But somewhere, like somewhere along the line, we heard the message, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and we said, sign me up. That sounds great. Because that message created a Jesus who serves our purposes. That message created a Jesus who just lifts us up into prominence and prosperity and success, but has nothing to do with who we are as people. But friend, Jesus comes to serve you, but he does not come to serve your purposes. Jesus comes to serve you, but he does not come to serve your purposes. The way he will best serve you is by taking authority over your life. You are best served by Jesus when you are most surrendered to Jesus. And here in this passage, we have those who want Jesus to serve their purposes, but they do not want Jesus to serve them by taking authority over their lives. They are happy to celebrate with Jesus. But the moment where he returns tomorrow to cleanse the temple is the moment where they start to say, I'm not sure I want this Jesus. I'm not sure I want the Jesus who has better for my life than simply better circumstances. Who you believe Jesus to be and who you believe yourself to be will deeply shape your response to him. Who is Jesus? This passage goes out of its way to show us that Jesus is the savior king and he holds all the authority and he intends to use that authority in your life to save you from your sins. And who are you? You are the one in desperate need of saving not simply from your circumstances, but from your very being. And you are the one deeply in need of not just a savior, but of a king who will lead you into righteousness and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And Jesus is showing up this week and he is claiming authority over your life. This, this story that happened 2,000 years ago, it, it is here for us today so that you can know that there is actually someone who has authority over your life other than you. And it's not your mom or your dad or your government or your school teachers or your boss, although they have been given to have authority over you by the truest authority, God. He has authority over over your life and he intends to use that authority to save you from yourself he is showing up this week he's claiming authority over your life but here's the deal today he is really easy to worship He is really easy to worship with palm fronds and to be excited about who he is. He's here, he's the king, and there's great anticipation for the kingdom that he will bring, but tomorrow as he starts to exercise his authority, it's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to start cleansing his people. He's going to start bringing about his rule and reign in their lives. And if we do not have a right belief about who Jesus is and who we are, we will reject him and we will miss Jesus. But let me tell you some good news. Jesus is absolutely not surprised by the fact that we will miss him. He's just not surprised by it. He's been prophesying what's to come for quite some time in this book and he does show up to be a savior king but he will do so by first becoming a rejected king. The disciples' wrong belief about Jesus and themselves does not cause Jesus to run away. Instead, he continues on into the city. He continues on to the cross, his coronation ceremony where he is given a crown of thorns and he is lifted up and exalted in his lowly, humiliated state. And in the cross, Jesus' identity becomes clear and our our identity becomes clear. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, the crucified King, and he comes to save his people from their sins by giving himself up as a ransom for for many. The cornerstone, The foundation of it all has become rejected and it was marvelous in the eyes of the Lord to do it that way. He became rejected so that you might be accepted. And here's this story in the middle of it all to help us to see that we have no problem accepting a triumphal king. But we have a really hard time accepting a crucified one. But Jesus' triumph comes through the cross. It's where his crown is given to him. It's where your sins have been paid for, it's where his people are redeemed, and it is in the cross that we have a right belief about who Jesus is, and we have a right belief about who we are. What do you want me to do for you? It's the question that's being asked. If you view Jesus simply as a savior, simply as a triumphal, powerful man who will remove you from your circumstances, you will say, yes, Jesus, help me, but don't change me. I'm fine. Help me, get me out, but don't touch me. Don't change me. I don't want to like, I don't want you to focus on my sin areas. I really just want you to make my life better. What do you want me to do for you if you view Jesus as simply as king? You will say conquer, take care of my enemies, but don't, just leave me alone. We need to recognize that Jesus comes to save us in all of us. And he comes to be the authority over all of us. Who you believe Jesus to be and who you believe yourself to be will deeply shape your response to him. Jesus is the savior king with authority over your life. You need him to save you, you need him to rescue you, and you need him to be the authority right here and right now bringing God's presence not simply to the temple, but into your very being. And that is worthy of celebration. But it's about to get uncomfortable. Because the king has arrived. Let us consider his identity and celebrate that he has come to save and to rule. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we get to celebrate this, that the king has arrived and we know that there will be discomfort in this week, and yet we rejoice that you, rejected by many, will will save. That you will be beaten for our transgressions and that you will be bruised for our iniquities. You will be crushed on our behalf and we can look to the cross as evidence of who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Help us to know you rightly in light of who you say you are and who we are, a people in need of a king, a people in need of a savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.